Hi, and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brook, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Okay, well, I'm very, very excited today because I have my great friend and a woman who I have to say has inspired me for many years, ever since I first met her uh, as the compare of a pitch fest in Melbourne, Dr. Polly McGee. Welcome. Hey, Jules, it's so, so great to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I just am such a big fan of yours. So this is the early days in my new She's the Boss podcast, which is really all about you and what a great boss chick you are. (laughs) So the first thing that I want to ask you is what exactly do you do? Can you tell us about your business and what you're doing now and why? It's a great question for the now, in fact, because it's something that I reckon I've struggled with for at least 15 years of that way to encapsulate what it is you do. So this is going to be a long and unexpected answer, I suspect. To this question, I like long and unexpected. Because I've just gone through a rebranding process and one of the things that I really struggled with was that I'm what's known apparently in the design industry as a slasher, which oh, is a slashy. I'm an author. No, slashy, I it's think it slashy. is, not slasher. I felt like slasher was even better because I was like an Italian <laughs> so It does, sounds like something out of... Um, um, uh, what's that one where Leatherface, what is it? It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You're the slasher. <laughs> Leatherface. Yeah. So evil dead star. So being a slashy, and it's interesting because I distinctly remember being coached by a professional consultancy coach to always have three or four things up your sleeve. So I would say, oh, well, I'm an author and I'm a digital strategist and I'm a, you know, 15 other million things, but people would always be like, so what, what do you do exactly? Because what really they'd see do me do? <laughs> on stage talking and they'd see me doing books and they'd see me doing consultancy and they'd see me catering for a local Buddhist gig and they'd see me doing stuff and like it was super, super confusing, which I took for a long time because in all of my careers, which are many and varied, I have to say, I've always done lots of things at once. I'm really curious and I love to go down the rabbit holes and if someone asks me to do something, I just say, yeah, yeah, I, I can do that even if I can't. So I was redoing my website and I was just like, I just, I don't want to be a slashy. And I I also am really sick of this idea that we have to have our identity attached to a doing. And because so much of my work is is around sort of a a spiritual engagement. Who am I in service to? What is it? What are the gifts that I'm bringing through someone else just by being there and witnessing them? So I came up with this this new way of describing myself and the website's going to launch really soon because we're just finishing <laughs> off now, which is all-purpose human being. An all-purpose human being, which is a bit, yeah. a bit like all-purpose flower, is it? Which is, well, there's kind of a, there's a little cute play on words there because I am known for my love of baking and the all-purposeness. But it's that idea that, that I'm an all-purpose human who's being. I'm not doing, I'm embodied in my humanity, I'm here having this experience doing whatever I'm doing and I don't have to go well I'm this price point and I'm this association and I'm this identity and I'm this look how cool I am it's just that I'm just here so whatever you want me to be you can change me like you can change that dough into any shape any form and for whatever you need I am an all-purpose human being and I'll remain so so this is going to be my steady state now no slashies for the rest of it 
for the rest of your yeah. life. All right, so, so I don't even need know how to ask you a question now that is going to help people understand. No, I can unpack that for you. So yeah, right now, <laughs> the, the majority of my work is spent doing leadership training. Um, my business partner, Zoe Coyle, and I run a business called Pilot Light, which does, we, we train under Brene Brown's Dare to Lead work. So we've been trained by Brene to do that uh, work. You're one of very few people in Australia that actually does that, aren't you? Very few ones. in Australia. There's only 400 in the world that did the training and I believe right. that I, I think close to 100 of those are no longer actually doing the work. So so I know do that, but we also do a range of other leadership and emotional intelligence. And again, we train people how to be human and how to be really beautiful whole beings and that's super important. So a big chunk of my life before COVID was doing face-to-face -face facilitation in that mode. Yeah. But I also write and I'm a digital strategist. So what that means is I create content and I help people find their identities and their brands online. A big portion of that work has been working for under actual programs as a content creator. So one of my, one of my aliases is um, Dr. Digital and Dr. Digital I've been doing for about 10 years where it started by me just writing content and writing a blog. So someone would write me a question like, Dr. Digital, I just don't understand the Facebook algorithm. And I'd be like, <laughs> you're not alone, but here's some of the ways you can get your head around. So Dr. Digital is kind of like an agony art that then just became an avatar that does a whole lot of digital education work. And then I just write and I poodle around and sort of find interesting rabbit holes to go down that are non-specific. Well, they are non-specific, but you love startups. I know that. I know you love anything to do with female empowerment and with helping people get ahead and try different things and innovation and technology and all that exciting stuff. Um, and you've been involved in that yeah, forever really because my vision of you, I was actually trying to describe you to someone the other day and I said I have such a clear vision of you because we both were at that pitch fest and I reckon we were one of four women around probably yeah. 200 yeah. blokes it had all been set up like the pitch club do you remember so yep. it was yep. like yep. a boxing ring that people had to get up and stand and talk yeah. in. and you were comparing it and you were wearing like a 50s style dress and a pair of Minnie Mouse shoes I just remember it so well <laughs> And how funny, unusual you, think you about were in that sea of that sort of It was in a boxing ring. Like you couldn't get more of a sausage fest than it was. putting people in a boxing ring, for that matter, or in a shark tank. And I think that really speaks to the heart of one of the reasons it's so difficult for women to, to find their grounded place in the startup sector. But you're right. I mean, I think much as I love rabbit holes, I love startups for the same reason because it's like you don't know what you're going to get. It's the great mystery of... Popping down that hole, following the It is. The it's the ultimate new shiny thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's new and shiny, but also, I, like, I love to explore finding new ways to satisfy customers. So from that UX perspective, startups are always solving problems. And yep. so what someone's problem is a really great thing to solve. And, I mean, you'd know as well from having been in all the businesses and particularly in PR, it's like we're telling the stories that are solving the problem so other people can go, oh, hmm, I want that too. Yes, and so true. that's like the capacity to sort of ideate and find new things. It's so interesting. So it's probably less about the shiny in a collectible way and more about the like, I feel good, I can tick that one off. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of it as just something new and exciting and interesting. And, I, and once I sort of touch the outsides of it, if there's anything that I can do to be involved in it or help with it or whatever... Uh, that's the rabbit hole that I go down. So talk to me a little bit. So you're doing this Brené Brown pilot life, um, pilot light, was it? 
Pilot Light, yeah. Right. So why? I want to know how you even thought of Brené Brown because I had never, and I know I'm probably one of very few women, but I had never heard of her before you mentioned her probably two years ago, I think it was, when I was down in Tassie and we were chatting. So can you tell me why did she resonate with you and why have you set this up in Australia? So it's another interesting rabbit hole because... I reckon someone told me about Brene and re- recommended I read one of her books. It would have been four years ago. And I was just like, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll get around to that. And I never kind of, I never jived with it and I never went down that path. It was just like people kept saying, oh, yeah, you should read this. But I had a lot of other books in my bookshelf to read. And then for some reason, one day I was just like, ah, oh, I've got to read that book. You know, it just, it was like my mind just drove me what's to the, the book. name of it so what's the title the, of the first book? book that she wrote was called daring greatly and it was about how to be vulnerable i mean the leadership pieces come sort of as a circle back for brene from her early work when she was working in corporate but her work for the last 20 years has been as a social researcher right. so she started to try and find out what what people could sort of what what things they could find to make themselves able to more reconcile their lives. So she was dealing with lots of trauma and she was talking to people about being vulnerable and she found that the people that were the most resilient were the most vulnerable. But in doing so, she uncovered that those people also had the best handle on how to manage shame. And for anyone who's ever even hears the word shame, I know most people I know suddenly just go like snails with salt poured on them. It's just, (laughs) we don't do shame well. We don't do vulnerability particularly well either. And we certainly hate talking about it. So no. Brene was like, I don't want to talk about this either. I'm a Texan woman. I don't want to have any of these soft, wet conversations. But I have to find out more about shame to be able to talk about vulnerability. And so went her own rabbit hole where she ended up doing several years researching shame. And then she came up with a TED Talk on vulnerability, which she tells the story of how she thought maybe two people would see it and it wasn't going to be a thing. And so she was really just herself and told what her journey with vulnerability had been. And suddenly it was like 50,000 views, 100,000, 500,000, 5 million. And she was like, holy shit, like this is out of the bag now. And I guess the rest is history for her. So in doing that work, so she's she's written several books and all of them, I like to almost read them in, in sequence because they take you through a process of understanding self, understanding what it is to start to step into a leadership role or to step into a role where you are starting to become a little bit immune to the criticism of others. She has very beautiful metaphors she uses, like standing in the arena. And, you know, that we're in, many of us are in these battles with the bigger world. But when we aren't caring for what the world is saying about us, we're only caring for what service we're giving. It's easier to stand there, get knocked down, stand up. So, of course, this had a lot of resonance for me as someone who's interested in this exploration of self, but also in startup world where, where the hallmark of startups is that you must fail over and over and over again. And, you know, we don't, we, don't, we talk yep. about failure in Australia, but we talk about it like the Americans talk about it because they really actually do failure pretty well. We do failure in an Australian way, which is we only talk about failure when we're a success again, you know, and we can say, oh, I did fail once. Yes, it's over there. Look at yes. Which is well, terrible so are there when you actually around fail. That? Sorry? But are there strategies around that? Because... I actually, obviously, through my PR thing, I'm saying to people, your struggle to success story is really what people want to read. They all want to hear that there's been a failure and that you've managed to recover from it somehow. And yet there is that positioning in Australia of I'm a leader, I know what I'm doing, so therefore I don't want to tell you that I had all these issues in the past because you might look at me and think I'm no longer an expert. Yeah, and I'm so I'm going to... 
put that in a car park and I'm going to come back to it, Jules, because I'll finish off on the, yes, the story of how said, we got to doing Brene because I, otherwise the listeners are just going to be like, I'm, I'm getting confused by her rabbit holes now and she's in another one. <laughs> so, so I sort of started reading the Brene stuff. It really resonated with me because at the time I was doing a, a tech startup and was having my own experience of deep rabbit holes of failure. And Brene sort of sent out a thing saying that she was going to do a, a training for facilitators. I did a lot of facilitating, you know, just because I'm, I speak in front of crowds and often get asked to. And Zoe, who's one of my best friends, was also, she's also a facilitator. She had her own company in Sydney. And we both said, oh, let's both apply. And if we get in, we'll go and train. And if we pass, then we'll come back to Australia and we'll start a company and we'll do this together because we'd always wanted to work together. And we got in and, you know, that selection process, I was sort of quite surprised because it's very vigorous, but there's a real, Brene is looking for certain types of people who can de- deliver the work with almost a spiritual and religious um, fidelity because yeah. it's so important to her that it's delivered in a way that empowers people and isn't used uh, in the wrong way. So we did that, we came back and we started and it, you know, at the same time as she'd released, Brene had released a documentary on Netflix called The Call to Courage. So Australians were starting to really adopt her leadership stuff and the way her leadership program works is it's all about heart-centered leadership and vulnerability and there's a beautiful quote in Dare to Lead the book by Manusha Fik who's the head of the London School of Business that's along the lines of something like the leadership of the past used muscles the leadership of the now uses intelligence and the leadership of the future is going to use heart and that really resonates with me because I think we are we're very much seeing what the outcome is of mind being used purely without heart and we're seeing it in the climate we're seeing it in inequities in society we're seeing it in all kinds of ways and we can't continue to work as though the earth has finite resources and humans are dispensable which is what we see in a lot of big business and big management so the move towards really understanding people and of course COVID has really opened up this whole world of of us seeing what the individual needs to work in a whole sense in their lives and I think the game's changed so that's the pilot light story but the failure piece was super interesting Jules because as a startup advisor for years I'd been always singing that song you know we've got to we've got to fail we've got to fail everyone's going to fail and we have to talk about it and that's how we get stronger and when I actually failed and I remember <laughs> you don't I, want to tell anyone <laughs> well I'd made the decision to to close my tech startup while I was in Texas training with Brene and I was really clear I was I think when I got some distance out of Australia I'd been trying to raise capital for six months I'd had no traction I'd taken on this company that I had no technical expertise in so I was very vulnerable in terms of always needing someone else to help me and the number of times people were like oh we'd fund you but you really need a male founder and you really need some tech expertise and all that anyway so I'd kind of with the the distance I'd been able to go okay this is not for me and I'm going to sort of shut it all down I was like that's okay you know I'm going to fail and I've tried and failed and I came home and I literally went to bed put the doona over my head and I'm like oh this jet lag's bad this time and then like a week later I'm like I'm not coming out from here this is this is bigger than this and the whole time I was thinking I've got to write a blog I've got to write a piece about this because this this is the problem that while we're in failure it's almost impossible to talk about it The, it the, the pain is so great and the sense of of not being able to function and that you just that you've really dropped a ball in a way that's so profound that it, as soon as I could get pen to paper I did but I swear it was another three months before I could write that piece that kind of said 
this is why we don't talk about failure because it's so painful and it's so difficult to articulate that it's only really able to be mentioned with some with some healing and some distance, which is really difficult because then we make it all dressed up and kind of like it's cool. It's fucking not cool. No, it isn't. But and you are. I mean, you know, I had that happen to me with the development of my platform. And I froze. You literally go, I actually don't even know what to do other than if, can I pretend it didn't happen or can I pretend yeah. it's not happening? Um, and, and then, you, as you say, with, with a bit of distance and some time, you can start to talk about it. And, of course, we've learned loads of things during that period. Yeah. But you're yeah. not, you, you just, it's the shame. You're so right with shame. And, I mean, I don't know very much Brené Brown stuff, but it is the shame, I think. And it's not. It's not personal shame in some way. It's just like it's a shame as well, you know, like in itself, of itself, it's a shame. Yeah, and it was a really, it was kind of a deep irony, of course, given I'd just done all this training on identifying shame and rising strong (laughs) and being resilient. And there I was kind of the least strong, least resilient, least rising. But I guess that was probably not a bad turnaround, but... It was absolutely about shame and it was the shame when you unpack it that not just that I've failed, like intellectually I can deal with that, but on a, on a really deep level it's the shame of I'm not enough. I wasn't enough to do this. Therefore, I'm probably not even enough in the world. And given how many women both you and I work with, we know that the, the, the overarching motif for women in the reason they hold themselves back is that they're told from birth they're not enough and that's yeah. reinforced over and over. And so... It's, it was a really kind of interesting bruising lesson of that shame is, is paralyzing and yeah. it's so much more important than ever to have us be able to recognize when it's happening, know what to do to pull ourselves out of it and then learn those lessons of resilience. So at the end of the dare to lead process, this idea of rising strong is that, you know, Brene says if you're brave enough for long enough, you're going to fall. And I think knowing that is kind of like, oh, here, here it is, <laughs> boom, <laughs> but how do I get up and dust off and put the arnica on the bruises and go back in the ring without just going, my life's over and I can't ever do that again and I'll just go back to, you know, something that no one will ever see me. It's like, but I also think in Australia we hang on to the shame a lot longer and we don't reward people yeah, we're just, for I mean, being really, brave and resilient. Yeah, because to me, and I actually do have that ability and maybe that's why I'm able to to keep going as an entrepreneur to just kind of go okay it was it happened move on and I'll laugh about it and I'll talk about it probably a year later I'm very impressed it took you only three months might take me a year other than very close friends but um but you do get that perspective in the end and you and you do kind of move on and try something else so Polly now I want to ask you because you are such a fascinating woman (laughs) and I don't know whether you can cast your mind back but can you talk to me about basically your career since you left school and how you've ended up where you are now. Because I'm guessing that at 16 or 18 or whatever you were when you finished school, you didn't think, oh, I think I'll go and work for Brene Brand, be a leadership person about vulnerability and um, shame. I totally didn't think that. And I think the benefit of hindsight and the looking backwards is that you realize all along the way that things are really connected and yes. you don't you don't recognize at the time they're connected and i think particularly when you're young and yeah you're full of all that sort of that so the the remnants of narcissistic sort of ego of youth you're all just about the moment and it's it's the only one thing so a lot of my a lot of my career was made 
just going down rabbit holes. But I had a lot of shame about that because I felt like I should have known what I wanted to do. And there were, I had a really, really, really strong belief that I should have known what I wanted to do and everyone else knew what they wanted to do. And Are you talking about I was the only just one. as you left school though? Because I'm really surprised. I mean, I never my knew whole, what I... Your my whole, whole teen, my whole like childhood, it was like, I think I'd read too many books where everyone was like a ballet dancer or they were an ice a doctor skater. Or had, a lawyer. They had something where they were just going to be that thing. And I was like, oh, everyone else knows. I felt like I was not in on some giant cosmic secret. So the doing of things wasn't so much about me recognising I'm just an experiential, curious creature. It was more like I was frantic. I was frantically trying to find who I was. So... I did this endless amount of stuff and it was that sense of that identity of who I was, feeling secure and feeling grounded and settled was going to come from me assuming an identity of a job. Now, while I've been talking to you, Jules, I've been frantically leafing through my book because Now, which when book, Polly, because you've written a couple of good, two or more, I don't know how many, but one that I've read, The Dog, Dogs of India, and you've got the other one, The Good Hustle. So which book? Yeah, so I'm looking at my book, The Good Hustle, which sort of was the culmination of of me going, okay, what are all the things I've learned as someone who was frantically rummaging through the sort of sale bin of roles to put on to see if any of them fitted me? And when I did that, I wrote a list of the jobs that I'd done. I'm going to read them to you because, you know, when I say I did a lot of stuff, you might get a sense (laughs) of the actual diversity I'm talking about. Okay. So in case anyone thought I really hadn't explored the amount of jobs I wanted to do, here's a selection I've done and there's more since I wrote the book. So I was a chef, a hairdresser, a sandwich hand, a commercial shop fitter, a window dresser, a fashion retailer, a call center agent, a cafe owner, an adult film reviewer, a political lobbyist, a digital strategist, a farmhand, an artist in residence, a radio presenter for the ABC, a public servant, a speechwriter, an innovation grants manager, an IP manager, a not-for-profit co-founder, a copywriter, a web builder, an academic, an author, a yoga teacher, a social media trainer, and a strategic marketing lead. Not exhaustive list. No, so, that's amazing. But but what's interesting to me is that there are almost themes as you go through it. You can yeah. see how that wrap, you're, as you, exactly as you said, and I'm sure you're about to now explain it, but that they are all connected. One led to another that then led to another that made you think you might do this and then that happened in your life. And so, which is really, yeah. I guess the message I want to get out to people is you mm. can't really plan for your life. It just happens unless you yeah. want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. And that's going to satisfy you for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And I know a number of vocational humans. My husband is one. He was born an engineer. Yeah. He spent his whole childhood doing electrical engineering around the house on things. He became an electrical engineer. He remains an electrical engineer and he's deeply happy and absolutely fulfilled and full of purpose. Yeah. Another of my friends is a vocational teacher, has been the whole time I've known him, he'll never do anything else because he just loves it. It's, it is who he is. Yeah. So that to me was always very confusing. But as you say, Jules, there's two things that that really, I guess, I've grown into now as an adult. I think I'm entering adulthood. I feel it's coming soon anyway. And one, <laughs> one is that, that the things that you feel are just like disjointed disasters. And in my mind, every time I did one of those many things and had a realisation that like the veil would be lifted and I'd be like, oh, no, this isn't the one, I would feel I'd failed. And I'd feel that yet again I was unable to get where everyone else had got and my life was in misery. And that's, that's mental torture. I know and you've been beating yourself up for a long time, haven't you? 
Yeah, but it was it really had that sense. And I remember sort of getting to my early 30s and just having a moment of going, I just can't go on. Like this was just, and I was thinking, you know, also in that sense of what deep bullshit it was to be so privileged, so educated, so like not in any kind of crisis and to be sort of in this kind of, oh no, poor me sort of mode. And I just thought, fucking, this is ridiculous. You're ridiculous. And I can't remember going, what if you just tried going into work and what you're doing, just enjoying it in the moment and being the best you can be and seeing if you can be in service to others. Stop reading all those books about yoga and spirituality and actually just do that thing that they tell you to. Surrender to who you are and help someone. And it completely transformed my experience of the workplace in that day. And it was like, oh, this is, this is what they're talking about. And then from there, everything just rolled in the most elegant way and all the things I'd kind of wanted and needed Boom, someone would ring up and say, oh, I've got this job. Can you come and do it? And it was like, oh, that's going to make me have enough money to do this other thing I wanted to do. And so it went. So it was a really good thing. But what I really understood is that none of us know anything. None of us know. And to think we can plan for anything more than 24 hours in advance, it's kind of nuts. And as is so sadly the reality of what's happened for many people who I would consider, you know, during COVID had brilliant businesses, had put 20 years of work yes. into them, gone overnight. Yes. So if we think we've got, we've got it under control, we just, it's just delusional. So to be able to just go, how much can I just stay present? And can I just be here for now? Without the labels, without the, I'm doing all this, I'm building this empire, I've got all these influences and followers. It's like, what about we just get through each day being the best we can? And it's just a really radically different way to look at how you go through the it world. It is, but do you think that you are saying that because you've had so many careers, because you've learned along the way? Because I do wonder, like, let's wind back and say we're now talking to two 25-year-olds who might be listening to us. They've only been working for maybe, if they've gone to uni, maybe only three or four years. I don't know that you can say to them, just embrace each day and go with it without any kind of, direction at all I mean I'm just really interested in this as a as a discussion point because what would you say to someone who's only had three years experience out there in the workforce or outside of of, you know in adulthood say it's interesting because a lot of my market or my audience I should say are 25 year olds and if I was talking to a 35 year old they'd want to know everything 25 year olds are just like we get you guys don't know what you're doing yeah, yeah. They're the first generation, or the millennials are definitely the first generation that know that adults don't know what's going on. Yeah, and that's true. That's sussed. true because so, we've, we've taken away that veil. I mean, my parents yes. were my parents were brought up. You know, children are seen and not heard. Yes. I think our generation, our parents, kind of loosened the reins a little bit and said, "Okay, I'll listen to your point of view, but I'm still the parent." Yeah. And all of a sudden, this generation, we're going, I don't know that much anyway. I'm not going to tell you what. You, I mean, I'm not saying this is all people, but I don't really think I'm in a position to tell you what to do. I'm just going to guide you along the way if you need help. Yeah, it's like we'll be in sort of parent-child therapy together. You know, get a two-for-one <laughs> yes. deal. But I think because of that, there's, there's, much, there's a much bigger focus on, on purpose and experience. And, you know, particularly now where it's like, so you're going to have to pay off this $200 billion debt and no one's ever going to afford a house. And it's kind of like, well, what am I going to do in my life that actually has meaning and purpose? Whereas I think the Gen Y, and again, generalising across demographics is a little bit like horoscopes, you know. It is. But for the purpose of that, there's there's a much bigger sort of aspiration to have the material and the concrete and that it's fixed and permanent. And I think, again, COVID has smacked us in the face with a very big lesson about 
what is actually important and that it's kind of our health and who we are and, and who we connect with and that connection is so vital. So I don't, I think if I was talking to a 25-year-old, we'd be having, and the 25-year-olds I talk to are wild. Their minds are wild. They're so entrepreneurial and yes. they see the world yes, as somewhere they can explore everywhere. They're, they're, they've got probably a high level of anxiety but a much higher level of passion and belief and purpose. And I don't know, like I don't think it, there's value in, I can't say what I would have done had I not had this experience No, that of, had. Course not. of course not. And, but I certainly, I certainly feel like the revelations around that came recently to me. And it was, it's been really recent that, and embedded absolutely by having spent the last 10 weeks at home versus traveling constantly and being bounding around being my, you know, curiosity fueled self. That yeah, time, I've really time to of, kind of go inwards my exterior has yeah, now started. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I do a lot of meditation. I talk a lot about my spiritual practice and my yogic practice. And I just, only, in fact, only yesterday I was writing an article for a newspaper and I suddenly realized that I'd actually just harmonized the stillness I get inside with the frenetic energy that I have outside. And it was like, oh, that's what that's about. So that, it was interesting and it's sort of constant. But I've been on that constant experiential path in in parallel for a long time there was a point at which the quest for understanding self and spirituality became really super important for me which was probably again in my late 20s early 30s but it was a part I was quite ashamed of because in my family spirituality was just seen as rubbish and you were a fool and science and fact was the only thing that really mattered and so it's taken me ages to come out and to sort of really again embed that in my brand and embed it in who I am, which is why I've sort of done this rebrand around just being quite blatant and out front that my work is to work with people for self-transformation. And that's it. It doesn't matter what flavor you put on it, whether it's digital doctoring or whether it's, you know, therapy with someone or coaching, whatever it is. My job is just to stand there and witness their transformation. And it's the most powerful thing. There. And you do that with leaders and people who aren't leaders? I mean, are you doing that with people who are really at the top of their game and people starting out? Or is there, um, do you try and get to the people who are slightly younger um, in order to facilitate that? When you say your, your job is just to be there and help people with transformation, who are you helping? We're really helping everyone. So in, in Dare to Lead, we do all kinds of different rooms. We certainly work with very, very senior executives and CEOs in that C-suite who are as in dire need of transformation as anyone else because their materiality and their success often is way out in front of their personal development and their time for themselves. And they don't know who they are. They just know who it is to be a CEO. And when they start doing self-exploratory work, it's kind of mind-blowing. I bet And I personally love working with emerging leaders. And I mean, my philosophy is we lead from every role in our life. We don't just lead from the top. So we're leading in families. We're leading in community. We're leading in us, you know, sitting in a car and not honking at someone. We're, doing, <laughs> we're leading. But I love working with, with people who haven't ever had anyone say to them, you know, you're a leader now. It's like this isn't age-related. It's attitude-related and it's essence-related. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the fact that we've all been put into isolation has put a whole lot of those leaders who do run on a rabbit hamster wheel with thousands and thousands of staff and I'm so busy and I travel everywhere and I do meetings all the time and oh my God, oh my God, sorry, you're going to stay put and you're actually going to spend time with your family who you probably hardly ever see. You're going to not be able to do anything other than Zoom calls. And I mean, I, I 
my dearest hope, and you hear about it all the time with people now, is that we are going to come out of this with some fundamental changes to how people think and how, especially those people that are trying to running the country and running big organisations, will hopefully have had some kind of an epiphany and gone, you know, maybe there's different ways we could be doing this and we could be a lot more gentle with people about the... Um, juggling their work and their home life and their work and how important it is and realising that, you know, if work goes, there's still a whole other life you can have, you know, and, and I think that's been really interesting, which is going to perfectly bring me along to my segue of, which I kind of know, I think I know what you're going to say, but I do ask this of the women that I'm interviewing, which is how do you juggle your work and your life? I'm guessing they're pretty closely intertwined for you. Yeah, I'm pretty integrated and for the, certainly for the last little while, I, I don't value work. I don't see work as separate to my life for a start. And I, I've violently opposed the idea of a work-life balance because it's like saying I'm going to have a, a parent work balance or a sporting club work balance. Like we're not separate people. We're not, we're all the same. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. this is, this is where like the flow of it is. I mean, and I've, I've worked remotely for probably 10 years. Yes. Yeah, my husband works remotely. We both work in startup kind of world. So We've we've always worked from home. We've always worked anywhere we can plug in a laptop, you know, in the last few years. So we've been actually, this is just business as usual for us. The fact that we aren't leaving the house is just, you know, we're still doing It's the just a bit way. of a bonus, but, actually, but I have to say yeah. Dave and I are exactly the same. Because we work online, it was kind of like, right, so all of a sudden we're not weird. And the other beautiful thing about this is that the rest of the world is now... <laughs> joining us you know like they're kind of going oh well if I've got to work at home oh maybe this yeah. actually is quite cool and you can get to know people on video and uh you know you don't have oh. to leave the house for meetings I've had to spend a lot of time fighting down my sense of deep deep putrid smugness because I've been banging on about remote <laughs> work for a decade I've been talking to anyone who'd listen and I constantly would talk to bosses and they'd be like Oh no, we've got to see people. How do we know they'll be working? And I'd be like, ah, oh, because they'll be producing yes. stuff like oh, an I'm... output, which is what they're meant to be doing now, right? Because I'm pretty sure the output for people isn't sitting at a desk for eight hours. And the, the no. lack of trust, it would astound me. And it's like, you don't have a remote working problem. You've got a fundamental management problem if you don't trust your people to be doing what you ask them to do. So suddenly when all these big companies are like, oh, actually, this is pretty good. And we just saved 18% on our <laughs> costs of running a company. Oh, it's like, this is the best. So I'm feeling pretty much smug. So Jules, I guess the answer to the question, because I'm such a, we go off on the tangents, us. But I know, for but me, that's the whole point just... of this conversation. <laughs> I, I really think that the important thing is that that we feel ourselves and we feel integrated. And I think the integration piece is really important. If I feel like I'm only working and I'm not napping and I'm not baking bread and I'm not hanging out with John and I'm not playing with the dog, like that's when I'm out of balance. And now sometimes I might have to deliver something and so I will spend a frantic three or four days, but I'll balance yes. that by breathing and stopping and being really grateful for that work and I don't I but I've worked in jobs where I've worked non-stop and I've always felt like oh, I've got to do more I've got to do more and it's so deeply unsustainable and it's so damaging to your health so for me yeah, it's like in crazy. this time it's just the time and and that's what I'm also hoping that people have really seen how much you can get done when you're not wasting time sitting at your desk such that you can take the dog for a walk in the middle of the day and you can have half an hour to meditate and you can still do all your work and you can still get dinner on the table and it's a yummy dinner, you know, and you can still hang out yeah. with your kids or whoever. Like we're really tricked into this world of work that being present and showing up and being the last to leave and the first to get there 
that's not life or productivity or even desirable. It's just a recipe for numbing the pain with food, alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, whatever else, because we're no, not I totally, present to totally, totally, our totally life agree. give us what we need. Yeah, and for many years I worked at agencies and I remember them mm. having that and, and, you know, many, many employees would remember it. And, and, I mean, I haven't worked really for anyone else for 20 years now, but I still remember my boss coming out and I was an account director with a couple of staff below me and sat at six o'clock and saying, where are, where's the, you know, where are the other two? And I said, well, I sent them home at 5.30 because we'd done work. And she said, I don't feel like this business is working properly unless people stay till at least 6 p.m., and I remember thinking, well, that's your bloody problem. That's not ours. You don't need to have that. So it's, it's really crazy. Okay, so now I've got a fun question for you, which I think you will enjoy, although I'm kind of throwing it at you without any warning. So we'll, let's see, here we go. Can you give me two useful apps that you think are great? Because we started talking about apps on She's the Boss in Our Lunches and things, and we have so much fun with oh my god I love this one and I know you're the queen of this so I guess the hardest thing for you is to just name two but can you give me a couple of apps that you think are really useful for business and then one fun one like my fun one is Candy Crush I'm ashamed to say but um my boys go it is impossible that you're still playing that goddamn game mum and I'm like <laughs> I'm up to level 4000 and something now um but anyway so what are your two useful apps and then a fun app so interestingly, um, I'm not the queen of apps because I just I, I don't keep anything on my phone that I don't use. And there's very okay. few apps that have come along that I actually am like, I use this every single day. So the app I use every single day without fail, and I'm going to categorize it as business and as pleasure, is Insight Timer, meditation timing app. Because without okay. my meditation, like that is my absolute non-negotiable. Wherever I am in the world, no matter what physical state I'm in, I will meditate every single day and I use Insight Timer to record that and to chime the little chimes at the right time. And so that's that's my number one app of all time for right. everything because it's just so totally precious. And as soon as I adopted it, I've never unadopted it. It's always been on the front page of my phone and will stay there forever. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. It's such a beautiful thing. And for anyone who's like, oh, God, I can't meditate. My mind's too busy, all of that stuff. It's another podcast story entirely, Jules. But this is a really good place to start with just getting getting a practice, even if it's only a minute or so a day. So the other app, which is probably my second go-to app, which I use constantly, and all of them sound like they're more leisure than work, but I see them as work tools, is, um, is Audible. Because I drive a lot yeah. when I'm whizzing around and I travel a lot when we have planes in the sky. And so I tend to not do a lot of fiction stuff. I don't watch a lot of fiction. I don't watch a lot of movies. I read a lot of books and I read a lot of nonfiction because I figure I can just continue to educate as I go. So I've always got a stack of stuff on Audible and on my Kindle. And if I buy a Kindle, I buy the audio. So I can either be driving and listening or I can be on a plane and be reading. And so it's oh, like wow. total utility for me. So it, like... I kind of I have a rule that I made in my own head around that what do I want to put in my head? What's my mental hygiene? And it's just if you're not meditating or sleeping or just doing something that's going to evolve you. So I evolved myself that way. So I'm bundling Kindle and Audible together because it's really, really super useful. And the other app that I just absolutely adore and I'm That's the whisper sync thing. Day isn't it? it came so out that... and like 
Sorry, that's the whisper sync so that you can move tra- sort of mm. um, seamlessly yeah. between audio and reading depending on where you are. Yeah. And devices because I might be on my iPad one day and then my phone the next. And I love it when it goes, do you remember what page you're up to? It's like, nah, <laughs> tell me. So, so that's that. And then the <laughs> thing that I love so much and I've just adopted and never, ever let go of is Spotify. And I really remember because I used to buy a lot of music and I'd always be buying a new thing on iTunes and it's so great that everything's just there and you know I've had a subscription to Spotify since the get-go and I love it I've got all these different playlists I share them with people I make playlists to go with my newsletters I'm like drop of the hat here's a playlist and it's just the connection through music is super important to me so that's just yeah I love it so insight timer for my meditation Audible and Kindle for my edumacation and Spotify for my dancemacation. <laughs> oh my God, you are so cool, my, You would, <laughs> I would think you were a twenty-five-year-old. I would. I, the last time I asked someone, they what, were are banking apps. what are you saying, Jules? <laughs> oh, I do use a lot of banking apps, clearly, but they're not fun. Yeah. They're just tools. <laughs> Take it as a positive, but. I uh, know. There you go. Isn't it interesting how some people think of them some way? And of course, I love music, but I hardly know Spotify at all. I am useless with it. I listen to the I download movies to iTunes and I I don't even really create playlists. I just go in and play an album like an old fashioned person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jules. <laughs> I know. Well, well, you know, I've got to show my chinks in the armour somewhere. All right. Now we're just about to wind this up. But I, again, I'm going to put you on the spot because I should have told you this earlier. But For any women that might be listening, are there any tips that you would like to offer about if you're going to run your own business, blur, have you got something that you would like to suggest? The most important thing I can say to all of you and I say it, looking you in the eye from my heart is just begin. Yes. You can't know what's right. You can't know anything more than the basic market research you're going to do. Everything you'll learn, you'll learn from talking to your customers and really, truly understanding what it is to be in service to another human. And you choose who you're in service to. So you want to open a fashion boutique, who are you in service to? How are you changing and transforming their lives with beautiful clothes or with witnessing them coming in to try them on. How do you change their lives with a coffee? How do you change their lives with a bunch of flowers, whatever it is, on an app, whatever you do, do it in service to others and you won't work a day in your life because you will always feel that you're getting a return and you are really deeply fulfilled. But don't wait. The thing I see with women all the time is this hesitation. I'm not enough. I don't know enough. I don't have enough. Who's going to believe in me? Who's going to, why would I be the one they'd buy from? And it's just, it's such deep bullshit and we must back ourselves more and we must back each other. And when we see women starting, we need to get behind them like big cheer squads and go, 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 because we have to really take each other together and launch ourselves together. It's so, so important. You know, we can transform the world as women in business and we just have to believe in ourselves. Oh, my God, that absolutely is the most beautiful thing to say. And that's exactly why I set up She's the Boss podcast, all the rest of it. It's about women empowering the women around them help other women so that we can lift all of us up. Um, That is the perfect ending to what has been... And that's why I love you, Jules, because you've... (laughs) Thank you, Polly. Well, this has just You've always done that. This has been the best interview. You are fabulous. I know that people are really going to enjoy it. If anyone wants to get hold of you, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? Head to my website, pollymcgee.com, and there's a contact form there. 
I'm on Insta as at Polly McGee, LinkedIn at Polly McGee. Just follow the rabbit hole of my name and you'll find me. Well, and I can't wait to meet you. Yeah, well, that was just brilliant. Thank you so, so much. And um, I hope everybody enjoys it. Thanks so much, Jules. You are the total boss. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this She's the Boss chat episode. It was great to have you here. If you want to stay in touch, you might also like some of the other things that we've got going on with She's the Boss. Firstly, I've got the She's the Boss show, which is on Ticker TV. Now, you can watch that either on tickertv.com.au or you can download the Ticker app from any of the app stores. So Apple and Android, and they've got an app that is for your phone, for your iPad or tablet, and for the smart TV. Or you could join us for our free Zoom lunches for female founders that we hold online. The best way to do any of these things really is go to she'sTheBoss.com.au and on there you can register for the lunches and I've also got links to the website. So either way, I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm really enjoying digging down and getting down to the nitty gritty with these women and I hope you'll join me for the next episode.